But let's begin reading at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, and then we'll read through chapter 4, verse 5. First Timothy 3, at verse 14, the word of the Lord. Paul to Timothy, who is serving uh, churches in Ephesus. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And here's our text. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. We bow before the Lord. O gracious God, we thank you for your sanctifying word and pray that it would do its work in us tonight. We pray that we might understand the things you've written, that we'd believe the word of our God, that we'd bow beneath your authority, and that we might be saved and sanctified by your glorious word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm reminded, as I am oftentimes, that chapter divisions are wonderfully helpful and at times misleading. They're helpful in finding things, of course, and referencing things, but but chapter vision, divisions have that, that uncanny effect of making us think that, that what's in a new chapter now is disconnected to what came before it. And we might do that here. That's why I wanted to read right across the two chapters. Because Paul, what he said last time and what we read this time are very much connected. He had told Timothy as he serves as a kind of pastor, evangelist in Ephesus, he had told him that he needs to know how to conduct himself in God's house and he had laid upon God's house, the church, not a building, but the people, a church, the wonderful title of the church is not only the church of the living God, but it is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Not that the truth depends upon the church, but precisely the opposite, that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth because she's founded upon the truth of God's word and because she lifts it up and holds it out for all the world. So the apostle had said that. And then he went on to say that the church, who is the pillar of this truth, has deposited in her this wonderful truth, the mystery of godliness, that the Son of God came down from heaven and took up human nature, that he came in the flesh, and that he, having died for our sins, was justified or raised in the Spirit. And being raised, he has ascended, been lifted up in glory, and that this message is being preached throughout all of the world, and people are believing. But no sooner does the apostle speak of this 
tremendous privilege and honor that the church has to hold forth this mystery of godliness then Paul warns that there's a great danger that there's false teaching and that some are going to leave the faith he warns the church that she has to do battle with demonic teaching false doctrines That there are those who are going to impugn the very good things God has made, his created order, and call into question these wonderful gifts of the Lord and try to manipulate Christianity to say we have to add something to the gospel or try to relocate sin, that the sin is not the issue of our heart, but it's something in the environment. Paul is warning Timothy that if the church will stand as the pillar and buttress of the truth, then she must be on her guard. And so tonight the Lord is protecting his church by exposing the doctrine of demons. Look with me first of all tonight at the spiritual battle in which we're engaged, and then at the deceptive teaching of which we need to be warned, and then at the sanctifying word, which really is the thing that protects us and keeps us free. So those three points tonight, the spiritual battle the deceptive teaching, and the sanctifying word. Well, Paul makes clear here that false teaching is coming. Some are going to depart the faith, he says, and embrace the satanic lies. And he warns him that that this warning he gives has come from the Spirit. The Spirit expressly says, Is he talking about what Jesus had said in his ministry when he predicted people apostatizing and false teachers? Is he referring to what he had said some years ago to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, warning them that someone arise from among them, teaching false things and leading many astray? Or is he referring now to some new and fresh prophecy of the Spirit he's just received? We're not entirely clear, but Paul wants Timothy to know that this is not some little fear that that Paul the Apostle has, but this is what God the Holy Spirit is warning the church. This will happen. While believers, true believers, we know, will persevere in the faith, they're still with the Spirit, they're preserved by God's hand, there are some who make a profession which seems genuine, but later come to renounce that, to deny that, and to prove they did not know Christ. Already back in chapter 1, Paul had spoken of Hymenaeus and Alexander who had made shipwreck of their faith. And now he's saying that in the latter times, some will depart the faith, and, and these are the times in which we live. You know, it's interesting in the Bible that these latter days, so often spoken of in Scripture, refer to the whole epoch of time between the, the ascension of Christ into heaven and his return. It's a unique era that we live in, this This day of salvation, the thing spoken of last time, and that mystery of godliness, that the Christ who died and was raised by the Spirit has ascended to heaven, and now this message is being preached among the Gentiles and believed on in the world. It's a glorious day, but it is a day of intense spiritual battle. Sometimes we maybe are a little too surprised that people fall away. We're tempted to be shaken and think, well, you know, I, I thought they were so genuine. I, I thought they loved the Lord. I don't know what I can believe now. I, I guess I'm not a good judge of character, a good judge of people. I'm so shaken. 
And God would say to us, your faith isn't founded upon your ability to read hearts. Your faith is founded on the word. And when people fall away, it doesn't disprove the word. It proves the word because I told you that would happen. The word of God is true. Satan's at work. It's a spiritual battle. Satan is the enemy here. He's been destroying and murdering with the lie since the beginning of time, hasn't he? He refused to submit to the authority of God's word, and now he tries at every turn to undermine that word, to deny that word, to refute that word, to confuse that word, to overthrow that word. Revelation 12 tells us that the great dragon was cast out of heaven. Quote, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. This is the way Satan operates in the world. To question God's word, to teach others to do the same. He's a liar and the father of lies, Jesus said. And so the, the thing that Paul's warning the church about is, is not some, some human invention, but the lie has been authored by the evil one, God's arch enemy. And God here is equipping his church by reminding Again, what he reminded the Ephesians, right? Paul had told them, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spirits, against dark powers, against principalities. And so we're to be on our guard and to keep watch. The Apostle John had shown such great care for the church when he wrote 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. And you remember... How the Bereans were praised because as Paul preached them, they received the word, but they searched the scriptures daily to see if such things were so. They examined what was said in the light of the word. We recognize that some of the most dangerous lies in the world are those that hide behind the truth. Many of the cults, they actually quote scripture. You can get Jehovah's Witnesses materials and they they quote the Bible. They seek to explain the Bible. They hide behind the Bible. There are many people like that. Christians are not to be naive, are they? They're not to be naive. In fact, the apostle says here that there are going to be not just demons at work here, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, but there's men, instruments of Satan, who speak the lies and hypocrisy. They're hypocrites. They're insincere. They wear a mask. They play a part. They pretend to be one thing when they're another. You have a bad habit of thinking that because somebody's really kind or really impassioned about what they're saying, or they have a great following, or they've said a couple things that are really helpful, that therefore whatever they say is truth. It's not true. Satan uses hypocrites. Satan equips them with the weapon of mass destruction. He puts a lie in their mouths. And they often come as wolves in sheep clothing. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So what do we learn? We learn that we shouldn't be surprised if those teaching air appear to be very kind, very loving, very impassioned, great defenders of the truth. Because we're expected 
they're expected to come in camouflage and come in disguise. They're hypocrites who are able to say with the most genuine, impassioned voice the very lie they speak. I heard of one minister who was called to a church. The elders asked him, do you believe in the virgin birth? And he replied, no. No, I don't, but if you want me to preach it, I'll preach it. What kind of insincerity is a man comfortable with who says something like that? The apostle says these are men who have their conscience seared. They have hit the snooze button on the alarm so many times. They have beat on it so many times that it doesn't signal anything anymore. Their conscience is seared. It's become insensitive to the word of God. It's been cauterized. We're called to retain a useful conscience by maintaining a clear conscience, one that responds to the word, doesn't seek to muffle that alarm bell. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, the word of God says. It is a dangerous thing to grow accustomed to pushing away the warnings that God gives us. So we're called to do three things in this first point. Number one, to recognize that we're in a life and death battle. It's a spiritual struggle, and Satan is crafty. Number two, we're called to study the truth and examine everything by it, to put on the whole armor of God so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. And here, church leaders especially. Paul's writing to Timothy. Church leaders especially are to be students of the word and and fit to examine what's being said. John Calvin points out sometimes we complain a bit too hopelessly that, you know, there's too much error, so much falsehood. And Calvin, if I remember right, makes something of the point that, well, you know, God has given us what we need. He's warned us about the lies. He's given us the truth. We go astray when we are careless or lazy, not because because it's inevitable that the lie will overcome us. We're to be students of the word, prayerful students. And thirdly, we're called to respond diligently to the Lord to maintain a sensitive conscience by quickly repenting, quickly being corrected, quickly responding in obedience to every word God speaks to us and never making peace with disobedience in our hearts. So that's the spiritual battle we're engaged in. But then the apostle goes on to give two specific examples of this false teaching That he's dealing with. Let's look at that secondly tonight the deceptive teaching. The two instances that Paul points out, verse 3, that they are forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. We could say they're requiring celibacy and vegetarianism. Or celibacy and fastings. The Apostle Paul had dealt with this kind of thing before. And now it was coming around again. These very things that are mentioned here have actually been proven repeatedly throughout church history, haven't they? There have always been some who have exalted the unmarried state, the celibate state, as the higher spiritual life. If you want to attain to 
a superior morality, then you need to forego sexual intimacy and marriage. It said that the Essenes, who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, refused to marry. There's been various groups throughout church history. And most familiar to us, of course, are the, the orders for the Roman Catholic priesthood. But Paul says they not only forbid to marry, they even command to abstain from certain food. doesn't tell us what he's thinking of here specifically, if it's some who've embraced the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws, or if it's some who say you should not eat meat, or if it's, it's some who are imposing fastings. But what are they doing? Why are they doing this? Well, we know that in the early centuries, Greek philosophy often suggested that the material world was evil. It's wrong. That the true God, good God, didn't even create this world. He wouldn't do that. Matter's not good. But maybe some Old Testament God, maybe he made world matter. Physical matter is is not good. Many had thought that. The physical realm is not a good realm. Maybe it's even a hindrance to what is good. Some, some of the Greek philosophers thought that, that salvation is when the soul escapes the prison house, the cage of the body, when it, when it gets rid of this material world. And in this view, then, of course, physical appetites and sexual desire and hunger are unclean appetites. And so the route to the higher spiritual life is to disregard this world. Some said you disregard the world by by asceticism, abstaining from all fleshly things. And others said, no, the route to overcoming the world is to indulge everything sensual. But in both cases, is it a disregard for the world God made? Now, of course, there's nothing sinful in choosing not to marry, and God gives the gift of singleness for the good of his kingdom. The apostle Paul lived as a single man, Jesus was single. And there's nothing wrong with choosing a certain diet for our health or for our budget. But the problem comes as people impose now these things upon others and say, this is what you need to supplement the work of Jesus, or this is what you need to grow deeper in the things of the Lord. Now, the issue, of course, is always the issue of authority. Who says so? Whenever people give up the authority of Scripture, then they invent their own law code. They invent their own religion, their own standards of righteousness. And so the question is always, well, what does the Word of God say about it? Wherever a man turns from the Word, he suggests his own ways of attaining spiritual high life. It's often the case, isn't it, that false religions engage of a substitution. Instead of purity of heart, they substitute ceremonies and outward actions. What's well, a lot easier, isn't it, just to do outward actions than it is to die to sin? The apostle is concerned about hypocrisy. And there's a lot of hypocrisy that goes on beneath those who wear the mask of outward ritual, but whose hearts do not bow before God. There's many who are unwilling to give up their hate, unwilling to give up their lust, unwilling to give up their greed, but they invent other laws that they can live by. 
Now they can check the boxes, all these ceremonies, all these outward regulations. I've done all those. Well, that's a nice, easy religion, isn't it? Our text has application beyond, I think, the forbidding of marriage and food. We can see how, how it is that wherever the truth of God is rejected, man invents a new spirituality. I think oftentimes of the environmentalism of our culture. I'm not talking about the good stewardship to which God calls us, but the, the environmentalism. It's a, a new God. It's a new religion. It has its own priesthood. It has its own regulations. It has its own laws, doesn't it? And if you just do these things, if you just use less energy, if you're just for this and against this, then you can appease your conscience. You're a good person. Or you listen to the language and the vigor and the debates about male and female roles, about abortion, about sexuality and gender, and and you can hear the religious fervor. And yet it's not enough just to look at the world, is it? But we have to look at ourselves always and ask ourselves if we're in the business of substituting our own man-made laws for the law of God or adding to the word now something. It's a dangerous thing to do, to add to God's word. It's a dangerous thing to be wiser than God. The Belgian Confession, Article 32, says, We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, these church leaders, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. We accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. Our Reformed parents were reacting, weren't they, against the heap of man-made laws put upon them. All these ways in which they were called now to worship God, through the prayers of saints, or through all kinds of ritual and ceremony. They said, no, you cannot impose on us what God's word has, and that's always a dangerous thing. Calvin, in his commentary, says, you know, you know the, 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 the Pope, the papacy, they, they laugh at us because we get, we get upset about this, about eating meat and all these laws, and they say it's just little things. And Calvin says, it's never a little thing. When you deviate from the word, it's a serious thing. It leads to great troubles. And so it is, isn't it? The consequences are great. W. John Cook in his little commentary writes, whenever marriage is forbidden and celibacy is enforced as it is on Roman Catholic clergy, there is a repudiation of the sole authority of the Lord Jesus over his church, and it is therefore not surprising that it is often has had sad consequences. Well, yeah, go read the Reformed Fathers 500 years ago. And you discover that sexual immorality among the priesthood is not some recent development. Sad consequences of adding to God's word. Sad consequences of inventing our own law code. Sad consequences of inventing our own way of climbing up to God, supplementing the work of Jesus. The self-deception of human merit that we, by our doings, are going to get close to God. It's a dangerous thing. 
but it is the plan of Satan, isn't it? To take away from the work of Jesus Christ by leading people sometimes into a very strict and self-disciplined life. People who, who are so rigorous, they seem to be so devoted, they're giving up so much. But it's all a human invention and the deceit of Satan to lead them away from Jesus and from the wonderful gospel that he died for sinners and he reconciled us to God. Well, what's the answer tonight? Well, the answer then, thirdly, is the sanctifying word. The sanctifying word and the response of faith, giving thanks to God. The rebuttal... To all those who would demean marriage and carry away our supper is verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God created. doesn't matter what people say. God created and God having made his world, he, he judged it for us and he judged it very good. That's what he said. Very good. That's what God said about all that he'd made. So he sang that song a minute, right? All things bright and beautiful. Over everything God had made, very good. Very good. Now, sin, of course, has done damage to creation, and sin has done damage to our hearts, and now people misuse the very good things, don't they? Right? People turn rocks into weapons, and people misuse food as an idol and twist sexuality and roll things up and smoke it. But that doesn't change the fact that God made things good. He made it for our good and for us to enjoy. Paul will say at the end of of the letter when he tells Timothy to urge the rich not to be haughty or trust in riches, he'll say in 1 Timothy 6.17, Not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Well, God gave us plants to eat in the beginning. And subsequent to the fall, God gave us meat to eat. God fed the Israelites in the wilderness with meat. God created marriage. Jesus honored it, as we saw this morning. His presence at the wedding in Cana. Hebrews 13.3 says the marriage, marriage is honorable among all, the bed undefiled. So we go back to the word, and as we go back to the scriptures, we discover that, that this physical world is not bad. God made us with a soul and with a body. God made us holy. Our bodies are holy. God gave us a Savior who came in the flesh, the Son of God in human nature. Dying, yes, also physically, and raised physically, and ascending physically. Lord Jesus is coming again, isn't he, to fix this whole world and to give us a new heavens and a new earth. Not a mystical world where there is no material matter, but a heavens and an earth. And God's word, it says here, sets all this apart to us. It sanctifies us, which means it sets it apart It's been sanctified. It's been given to us to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
Isn't it wonderful tonight to know the truth? As you see all the weirdness in this world, to know the truth. Wherever the truth is forgotten, people do strange things with creation, right? They misuse it in ways where they're fearful of it. They think demons are hiding in trees and they... It's the Christian who knows what this world is. It's the Christian who knows the truth about what the real problem is. The problem in this world is not marriage. The problem in this world is not food. The problem in the world is not material matter. The problem is our sin. The problem is our hearts. False religions are always trying to relocate the problem, right? Instead of saying the problem is my sin, I need the Son of God to die on the cross for my sin, pay my penalty, they relocate the problem. The problem is oppression. I'm being oppressed. I'm a minority. And so I need to get rid of my oppressors. That's my main problem. The problem is the environment is is decaying. It's being corrupted. And so we need to get rid of the people that corrupt it. You see, you relocate the problem, and and then the problem is not you. The problem is not your heart. And then you don't need Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to die on a cross for you because you can fix it. But there are people who know the truth, who bow before the word, who listen to what God said, that buying carbon credits is not going to get you to heaven. Feeling guilty about having a nice time with family is not going to get you to heaven. Foregoing marriage or foregoing food or foregoing meat is not going to save your soul. The problem is that we offended God by our sin. The problem is that we refuse to give thanks to the God who in his love and grace created us and lavished this world upon us. We rejected him. We refused to give him thanks. We tried to dethrone him. And yet God in his mercy followed us into this world with his own beloved son. Jesus Christ was cut off at the cross, wasn't he? From all the joys and the blessings of this life, he was cut off from family and friends. He was cut off. He was hungry and he was thirsty. He was bloodied. He was abandoned. Christ suffered the loss of everything to restore it all to us as God's people. What does God seek from us now? Well, verses 4 and 5, Every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. We bow our heads before we eat a meal, don't we? It's, It's entirely appropriate. It was the pattern of our Lord Jesus. That when you receive a gift, before you run off to go play with the gift, you say, thank you. And so we do before we eat. We say thank you to God, sanctified by the word of God, what God has said about that food, by the blessing of God upon that food, and by the prayer in which we thank God for it. Well, we're certainly called at times, well, all the time, in certain ways to self-denial and self-sacrifice and being willing to share with those in need, all of that very much said in other texts of Scripture. But let's not misunderstand as if it's a call to deny the goodness of what God has made or to refuse from his hand every good gift. We pray. We say grace. And not just for our food, as G.K. Chesterton has famously quoted, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and grace before I open a book 
and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I put the pen in the ink. Well, that's something I do, I think. But the whole world is given to us in Christ, the whole of creation, that we may receive it from God's hand with gratitude. We may eat and drink to the glory of God. We may enjoy friends and family around the table. We may laugh and have a good time. We may give thanks to God as we go off to work, grateful that we have a job tomorrow. We give thanks to God as we enjoy retirement, thankful that we have these moments to enjoy with our spouse. We may smile over children. We may hug grandchildren and say thank you to God who, who gave us these things. We may say thank you as we plant a garden, as we pick the produce, as we tend to our flowers. So go for a walk. The sunshine. Psalm 104 calls for rejoicing in the Lord who cares for creation, who nourishes his children, who gives us seed time and harvest. We as God's people, we may go through this world rejoicing. Because the real problem Christ has dealt with. And in Christ, the world is restored to us. We may go through this life eating and drinking, running and jumping, working and denying where God says, not because food is bad, but because maybe there's something else that needs our attention. Sacrifices for the good of the kingdom, but not because creation is bad. We go through life then saying, this is my father's world. This is my father's world. And I'm not going to let Satan with all of his lies and deceit come into my father's world and tell me something different. This is God's world. He made it. He made it good. He gave it to us and he's restored it to us in Jesus Christ. And we will eat and drink in faith and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for all your mercies. Thank you for all your goodness. Thank you for this well-ordered creation and all of its bounty. And let us use it for your praise. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us to know the truth and believe on the Lord Jesus. What a mixed up world. What strange religions. What manifold deceptions of the evil one at every turn. It's a blessing, Lord, tonight to have been given eyes that can see truly what creation is. We pray as we receive these gifts from your hand that we would do it with truly grateful hearts, knowing that we deserve none of your blessings, that we had forfeited them all, but rejoicing that Christ's life was forfeit so that we could be reconciled to you and receive from your hand your love. Oh, God, help us. Help us to have grateful hearts. We are prone ourselves to ingratitude. And we pray you train us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Save us from the lies of the evil one. Amen. Let's sing, let all things.